So we kind of did an overview of this whole Balaam narrative a couple of weeks ago, and then last week we looked at Balaam's first oracle, and tonight we're focusing in here on Balaam's second oracle. And as I said last week, we're, we're, we can't make just direct application, like if we should just decide to go take over other countries, the Lord will help us, right? Because He has made us a people who are like a lioness which rises up and lifts itself and will not lay it down again until it has devoured the prey and drunk the blood of the slain. So, God is with us. Enter military conquest. Right? This is not exactly how it applies. And yet, it's not... It's not not applicable. It's, it, the whole Exodus narrative is related very much to our lives. And in fact, the, the way the New Testament talks about it is we are the true Israel who belong to Christ Jesus. He is not a Jew who is merely one outwardly, but if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. And so what God does with this old covenant people of Israel is what we call typological. Typology is the key concept here. Where these are real historical events, and yet they foreshadow and signify something greater than themselves. And so what we want to do as we look at this Balaam narrative, we see obviously the big idea of the whole Balaam narrative is that God has intended to bless these people. He has chosen them, as I said last week, not in exactly the same way that He has elected us. And yet he has chosen them and he's chosen them to bless them. And if he has chosen them to bless them by bringing them in and planting them in the promised land. And that, that was a good thing and that the fate of old covenant Israel was desirable. As Balaam says in the first oracle, let me die the death of the upright. Let my end be like his. Then we saw last week. The way that we apply this to our lives is we go, well, how much more then? Who are not the types, who are not living in the types, but who are living in what theologians call the anti-types. Or those who are not living in the time of the signs, but in the time of the fulfillment of those things and the things signified. How much more are we blessed to to be chosen and to be on a, a journey, to be going somewhere, to cross a river Jordan, as it were, and end up in a promised land where God will dwell with us forever. How much more is the lens that we've got to look at this Balaam narrative through since it's not directly applicable to us in a one-to-one kind of way? So with that in mind, let's look first at how Israel will be blessed. And then at the end, we'll just kind of do this how much more thing. The first reason that Israel will be blessed is because of God's immutability. God does not change. There is no shadow of turning with thee, as we so often sing. Great is thy faithfulness. Verse 19 contains this. God is not man that he should lie, or some translations have it, that he should fail, or a son of man that he should change his mind? Look, I've been told many times that I can count on something. And then I go back to take advantage of whatever it is that someone has promised me. And it doesn't work out. I'm sure you've had the same experience. Y'all know I've been struggling with that with my truck. 
over the last year at various times. I always think, well, I'm going to have it in time for next Sunday, and then next Sunday, and then next Sunday, and so on and so forth. I mean, we, we know this. People make promises, and then they don't follow through on their promises. My truck has been stressful for me, but it's a somewhat frivolous example. Probably many of us have experienced deep emotional damage. I couldn't resist. <laughs> many of us have, have likely experienced many of us have likely experienced serious emotional pain, right? As a result of loved ones in our lives overpromising and underdelivering. And we think we can count on something someone but then, lo and behold, they change. And we can't count on them. Right? God is not like that. God is what we call immutable, which is just a theological word for it. He just doesn't change. That doesn't mean He doesn't change a lot, but He changes maybe a little bit, so He's pretty steady. No, immutability means He doesn't change at all. He is the same. Yesterday, today, and forever. The God who is the God of Israel, is our God. He does not change. Israel will be blessed because of God's immutability. That's in verse 19. Secondly, we see in verse 21 that Israel will be blessed because of God's vision for Israel, so to speak. Hear me out here. He has not beheld misfortune in Jacob, nor has he seen trouble in Israel. Look at verse 13. We didn't read it tonight. We read it a couple weeks ago when we looked at the whole narrative. But look back at verse 13. Balak said to Balaam, Please come with me to another place from which you may see them. You shall see only a fraction of them and shall not see them all. Then curse them from there for me. In verse 13, Balak presumes that what Balaam is going to say is going to be dependent upon or related to what Balaam sees of Israel. In other words, Balaam looks upon Israel. What does he see? Balaam speaks it into being, as it were. That's the concept here, right? Well, look at verse 21. What does God see? God has not beheld misfortune in Jacob, nor has He seen trouble in Israel. Therefore, Israel is blessed. Listen, it doesn't matter what Balak sees when he beholds Israel. It doesn't matter what Balaam sees when he beholds Israel. It doesn't matter what the kings, Sihon and Og, see when they behold Israel. It doesn't matter what the people cowering inside Jericho see when they behold Israel. It does not matter what anyone sees, what anyone's vision of Israel is, or vision for Israel is, or the way they perceive them, or what they think they could be or should be. It does not matter. What matters is how God sees Israel. And when God looks at Israel, it says He has not beheld misfortune in Jacob, nor has He seen trouble in Israel. Now, 
just let me touch on this because if anyone's following in the King James Version, there's a very notable discrepancy. In verse 21 in the King James Version, it says, He has not beheld iniquity and perverseness in Israel, which are very different than um, misfortune and trouble. Right? So let's just, let me just deal with that. When you look up the Hebrew words, which the King James translates as iniquity and perverseness, they most often mean, guess what? Iniquity and perverseness. Alright, but they do have a broader semantic range. Which means at times, even in the King James Version, they are translated as mourning, trouble, and misery. Alright, even in the King James Version. So, the issue here is that we have words which could mean misfortune and trouble, or they could mean iniquity and perverseness. Now, if we translate as iniquity and perverseness, then the reason, the implied reason that Israel is blessed is because God has looked in their camp and seen purity. Well, we know for a couple reasons that's not a very good theological way to take it because First of all, in Numbers, they have actually sinned a lot, a bunch. And in fact, at the beginning of 25, they fall into serious sin again. And whore after uh, Baal of Peor and commit adultery with the Midianite women. So they just are not free of iniquity and perverseness. Uh, And then... I said two things, but I think I just melded them together. That, that, the, idea, the idea here is that if we take it as iniquity and perverseness, it creates sort of a discrepancy between what actually is the case and what God perceives. And then we also create an issue of, or, or a theological issue of the concept of meriting where Israel, it's Israel's non-perverseness and freedom from iniquity, which is the grounds of the blessing here in this passage. So I don't think it makes clear theological sense to say that. Now you might say the same thing that God's vision for the Israelites is to make them a people free from iniquity and perverseness. Um, it's possible. I'm not going to really land firmly on it. I just think I can understand why taking acceptable alternatives from within the semantic range of those Hebrew words makes more sense and why the ESV translators have brought this across as misfortune and trouble because the whole Exodus narrative is God actually bringing his people out of misfortune and trouble and preserving them from misfortune and trouble. And even though they're constantly grumbling, they're not actually ever in misfortune or trouble, are they? God is providing for them every step of the way. Their shoes are not wearing out. He's feeding them. He's giving them water. 
he's with them, he's defending them in a military sense. So I tend to think that the uh, way that the ESV has brought it across is fraught with less difficulties and is probably a more natural translation given that those words can legitimately mean these things. I think we're better to take it the way it lies in the ESV. But just to touch that in case anyone's ever reading this in King James or in case anyone online is following along in King, J King James and you're seeing that notable and obvious discrepancy. So, so let me review the first two points here. Israel will be blessed because of God's immutability. Secondly, Israel will be blessed because of God's vision for Israel, so to speak. What does God see? doesn't matter what Balaam sees or what Balak sees. What does God see when he looks upon Israel? And it's not misfortune and trouble. He intends to bring them out and to bless them. And he is, in fact, present among them. This is our third point. Israel would be blessed because of God's presence among them. This is also in verse 21. The Lord their God is with them. And the shout of a king is among them. Who is the king of Israel at this time? We've been reading in our chronological Old Testament readings in 1 Samuel, and we've been reading about Saul and now David. But at this time, there was no human king in Israel. The Lord himself was with them as their king. In fact, the Lord says much later, at the time of the Saul narrative, they've rejected me from being their king. And so this is what this means here. God is with them as their king. And you think Og, who slept on a 12-foot-long metal bed, is a powerful king? Well, I'll tell you who's a more powerful king. Yahweh, who closed the Red Sea over the armies of Pharaoh. Yahweh, who defeated Og and all of his armies, and so on and so forth. A great king is in their midst, Yahweh himself. Israel would be blessed because of God's presence among them. In the tabernacle, He is specially present in a way in which He is not present everywhere by virtue of His omnipresence. In the pillar of cloud, and the pillar of fire, He is present in a special way with Israel in a way in which He is not present everywhere by virtue of His omnipresence. He is with Israel in a special way. And Israel will therefore be blessed because of God's presence among them. And then verse 22 tells us that Israel will be blessed because of God's empowerment of them. God brings them out of Egypt and is for them like the horns of a wild ox. The imagery of horns is used throughout Scripture to speak about power. And so you have beasts with horns are symbolic of powerful beasts. And horns... Are, the, are spoken of as the instrument of those animals' power. Their horns are their strong part, if you will. And we sang earlier in the service from Psalm 148, where it says that God has raised up a horn for His people. God is with his people and the manner in which he is with them is the manner of a wild ox with horns who routes the enemies of Israel before them. 
who tramples them down, so to speak, in front of them and gores them and, and gouges them with his horns, pushes them with his horns. So Israel will be blessed because of God's immutability. Israel will be blessed because of God's vision for Israel. Whatever Balaam sees, God sees no trouble or misfortune in Israel. Israel will be blessed because of God's presence among them and His presence among them as a wild ox. Let me just note one more thing before I sum up this section. One commentator notes that the statement here, as it, as it comes to us in English also, is in the Hebrew present tense also. Numbers 23 and verse 22. God brings them out. God brings them out of Egypt. It didn't say God brought them out of Egypt. It says God brings them out of Egypt. And apparently that's the way it is in the Hebrew also. The commentator says this indicates for us that theologically there's a sense in which God is always bringing his people out of Egypt. It is a present reality. We could we could certainly we can certainly appreciate the historicity and the, the one-time act and rescue of Israel literally out of Egypt. But we can, also de- de- we can also recognize that there is a real sense in which God, throughout the history of the Old Testament, brings His people up out of an Egypt, as it were. Time and time and time and time again. Surely we can recognize that, that God brings us up out of Egypt in various ways, time and time again. He has brought us up out of Egypt rescuing us from the guilt and misery that we were in because of our sin. He has pardoned our iniquities and counted us as righteous for Christ's sake, justified us. Certainly this is the first and foremost way in which God has brought us up out of Egypt. But I'm sure we've seen God's gracious intervention many times in our lives. And we could say God brings us up out of Egypt. That's the kind of God He is. Who is Yahweh? He's a God who brings His people up out of Egypt. Present tense. I just thought that was... A powerful way of phrasing it and worth mentioning to you. The result of this blessing of Israel, rooted in God's immutability and God's vision for the people and God's presence among them and God's empowerment of them, the result of this blessing of Israel in the Old Covenant, bringing them out of Egypt and entering into this covenant with them and bringing them into the promised land and planting them in the promised land. The result of this is the glory of God. Look at verse 23. Now it shall be said of Jacob and Israel, what has God wrought? When the nations see Israel dwelling in the promised land, and when they hear the legends of old, that there used to be a king named Sihon here. There used to be a king named Og here. There used to be many peoples dwelling in these lands. But here are the Israelites. It will be said, what has God wrought? Look at what God has done. You see, the planting of the Israelites in the promised land is not their own doing. It's not something that they accomplish. It's not something certainly that they merit. Nor is it something that they achieve in their own strength. This is something that God has purposed to do. And this is something that God has done. And so when the 
Tales are told of Og and his 12 foot long iron bed and what a mighty king he was. But the Israelites defeated him and took over his land. People are not going to say, glory, glory, hallelujah to the Israelites. They're going to say, glory, glory, hallelujah to the God of the Israelites, Yahweh. What God has wrought, put down Og in front of them. When stories are told of the walls of Jericho tumbling down, people are not going to say glory to Israel for what they have done. People are going to say glory to the God of Israel for what He has done. Would you believe they just marched around the city and then blew a bunch of trumpets and the walls came tumbling down? That's an act of God. This is not an expected military conquest. Remember when God brought the Israelites up out of Egypt, He led them not in the most direct way, lest they see war and change their minds and turn around. God did not bring a fighting force up out of Egypt. And then they wandered around for 40 years and that whole generation died. And a bunch of young fellas who had grown up in the wilderness made it made up and constituted this army which overthrew Sihon and Og and Jericho and so on and so forth. Look, this is not what you would expect. If I, had to, if I was a betting man and I didn't know anything about God's promises and the trustworthiness of God's promises and whatnot, and I looked at Sihon and Og drawing up battle lines and a bunch of guys who had been wandering around in the wilderness for 40 years, look here. <laughs> it doesn't take an astute odds maker to recognize who is the favorite here. Og coming out 10 feet tall, an ancestor probably of Goliath who we read about in 1 Samuel 17 tonight, and his army versus a bunch of desert dwellers. Right? What God has wrought. What God has wrought. When people see the blessedness that the Israelites have been brought into, it will redound to the praise of God's glory. Now, what has God said concerning us? The true Israel. Those who are Christ. And because we are Christ, we are Abraham's offspring. Who have not been brought into a covenant which promises us this land of Canaan, having been brought into a covenant which promises us not military success conditioned upon the keeping of God's law and so on and so forth. What has God said concerning us who have been brought into a covenant which Christ mediates, which is enacted on better promises as Hebrews 8 puts it, which concerns not this earthly promised land of Canaan but a better city a heavenly one as Hebrews 11 calls it whose builder and architect is God a better country which Abraham dwelling in tents with Isaac his son was looking for even as he dwelt in Canaan he Hebrews 11 says that he was looking for a better country while he was dwelling in tents in the country that God had promised him. See? How much more? You see? 
What has God said concerning us? Well, God has said that He will plant us where He has promised to plant us. The new Jerusalem, which is above. The heavenly Mount Zion. God shall dwell with us and we shall be His people in a way like how God dwelt among these old covenant Israelites, but much more. God has said that no weapon formed against us shall prosper, which doesn't mean they're not going to cut off your head. But what it means is that the progress that we are making towards our promised land will not be hindered by opposition. There is no army that can stand between us and the promised land which God has intended to bring us into. They may cut off our heads, but the second death will not hurt us and we still end up in the promised land, ultimately. There is victory in that pilgrimage towards that promised land which God has promised to bring us into. God is not a man that He should lie or a son of man that He should change His mind. So Christian, when your eyes close in death and you wonder whether you're really going to make it into the promised land or not, you just remember, God has said He will bring me in. He is not a man that He should lie or a son of man that He should change His mind. And this river Jordan which I am about to cross will not be the death of me. But I'll end up on the other side and I'll be there. God will dwell with me. He will be my God and I will be His. What is God's vision for our lives? What, what do the nations say about Christians? What do the detractors, what do the opponents say about Christians? What do they see when they look at us? When they go up on their high hills and behold us, what do they see? Look, they can't speak anything into being based upon what they see. Who is it that speaks into being? It's God. And what does He see? He sees us becoming like Christ. For we have been predestined to be conformed to His image. He sees us as a chosen race, a, a royal priesthood, a holy nation called out of the darkness into His marvelous light that we may proclaim His excellencies. 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 9. This is who we are becoming. This is what God will shape us and form us to be. A blessed and blessing people. Blessed ourselves to know God and blessing as we proclaim the excellencies of Him who called us out of the darkness into His marvelous light. And as we do this, what He has purposed us to do and shapes us and forms us into what He has declared and decreed that we will be, He is with us. And He is with us as the horns of a wild ox. 
And as we endeavor then to become like Christ and to proclaim the excellencies of Christ, He will empower us in that. He will be for us in that endeavor like the horns of a wild ox. God will take a bunch of people who were in an Egypt of sorts. Or let me say this, present tense, right? God is taking a bunch of people who were in an Egypt of sorts. Just helpless in and of ourselves. Guilty, miserable, undeserving. And He brings us out. And He leads us on this journey. And He's shaping us and forming us to be like His Son. And we are to be a a testament to the nations of Yahweh's saving grace. Both in terms of what we become, a wordless testament, but also a proclaiming people. And as we live and work towards these ends, God helps us become what He has destined us to be. And we find that we're able to leave old sins behind. And we find that we're able to be a little more bold witnessing for Christ Jesus. And we find as life goes on that we are more and more blessed. Not necessarily health, wealth, prosperity, but the longer I serve Him, the sweeter He grows. And we become more and more a happy and holy, faithful, proclaiming people. And one day, God brings us, each one of us, one by one, across that river Jordan, so to speak, until we dwell with Him in the new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells, that promised land. And when we get there, and everything is seen from a zoomed out perspective, the result is not that unbelievers, the nations as it were, will look at us and be like, those were some good people. They were really great people. They deserved it. They worked hard. They had merit. They had fortitude. They had good character. They, man, they crushed it. Look at what they've done for themselves. The result of it will not be that. The result of it will be exactly what's said here. It shall be said of us. What has God wrought? When on that day, we are planted on heavenly Mount Zion, it shall be said of us, what has God wrought? When the tales are told about all of the earthly struggles we went through and the sins we overcame and the growth that we experienced and the deeds of evangelistic valor that this one accomplished or that one accomplished, it's not going to be like glory to William Carey, glory to Paul Washington. It's going to be like, what has God wrought? 
Look at these people, man. Look at the work of God's hands. What has God brought? 